Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is Saturday, the 14th of November of 2020. And the article that I'm going to be discussing today was published on the 12th of November of 2020. So just two days ago. And it was published in the journal JAMA. And this article is free for you to download and read for yourself. Don't trust me. This isn't medical advice. The title of the article that I'm going to be discussing today is Fluvoxamine versus Placebo and clinical deterioration in outpatients, again, the outpatients is pretty important here, with symptomatic COVID-19, a randomized clinical trial. And I definitely have to tip my hat to the authors of this trial. I am very much interested in any clinical trial that takes place in the outpatient setting, because first of all, I feel a lot of studies are lacking. We're not, we're not putting enough research into outpatient studies for COVID-19 because ultimately if we could stop it early, if we could diminish the likelihood that a patient progresses to eventually needing hospitalization and eventually needing to go to the ICU, the better our outcomes are going to be overall. Again, the main goal for COVID obviously is to avoid the spread through all the different manners that people are discussing that have shown to be efficacious. But if people do catch COVID, we need to find a way to diminish the severity of their illness, their inflammatory process, all the different clinical manifestations that are caused by COVID. So the more data we could get and the more different weapons of sort in our armamentarium, if I said that word correctly, the better it's going to be for patient outcomes and for us to be able to defeat this virus. Before we could dig into what they did in the study, we need to understand what fluvoxamine is. I've been familiar with this drug for many years now, given my background as a pharmacy tech, even before I went into medical school, and it is from a pharmacologic category. And again, this information I'm reading to you is from up to date. It is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and it is used in different indications that are, that are noted on up to date, as well as, you know, things that we, we see in practice. First of all, it's used for obsessive compulsive disorder. It is also used off-label for several things such as bulimia nervosa, major depressive disorder, as well as panic disorder. You also see it as an off-label use for PTSD and social anxiety disorder. So if you see, it has a lot of things to do with underlying mental health issues where it could possibly help out our patients. So the mechanism of action, as I mentioned before, is that it inhibits CNS neuron serotonin uptake with minimal or no effect on reuptake of norepinephrine or dopamine. And it does not significantly bind to alpha adrenergic histamine or cholinergic receptors. Another important thing to note is that this medication is not necessarily expensive based on the average uh, wholesale price as noted on up to date. At this point, you're probably asking yourself the same thing I was asking myself when I read the title for this article. How is an SSRI going to help the inflammatory process of COVID? But like you, I am constantly learning and I found this to be pretty, pretty cool at the end of the day because they found that fluvoxamine as well as other SSRIs could potentially modulate the immune response for COVID. It has to do with some high affinity for SR1, excuse me, S1R which ultimately reduces damaging aspects of the inflammatory response during sepsis. And it also decreased shock in murine sepsis models. Did what I just say make sense and make you very convinced that it's going to work for COVID? 
Well, it didn't quite work out for me either. And actually, the authors state that the, quote, underlying mechanism needs further clarification, end quote. That's pretty funny. But they also go ahead and produce other alternative mechanisms, which could kind of rationale why the fluvoxamine should work, which include direct antiviral effects via, and forgive me as I read this word, uh, possibly incorrectly, lysosomotropic properties and also modulation of the effect of IRE1 effects on, mm, God, man, I really can't, can't read this, autophagy, um, autophagy, <laughs> but either way, also SSRI inhibition, inhibition of platelet activation. I guess I should practice these words before I get on the mic for these podcasts. Anyway, carrying on, let's look at what they did in this study. So the patients in this study were from the greater St. Louis metropolitan area, which they considered Eastern Missouri as well as Southern Illinois. And they were recruited from April to August of this year. And they did these uh, 30-day post-randomization follow-up assessments that were completed via telephone. It was pretty cool because this whole entire trial was fully remote, which is awesome. They were able to recruit the patients using EHR records as well as physician and other other health professional referrals. They also did advertisements or advertisements near COVID testing centers, EDs, things like that, which is also which is all pretty cool. And they actually sent the study supplies to the homes and left on the front door of the homes of the patients who were enrolled into the study. And in that particular care package, they got O2 SAT monitors, blood pressure cuffs, as well as a thermometer. And then the patients were uh, trained on how to use this different equipment. And, you know, they went ahead and collected a whole bunch of data, you know, things like shortness of breath and, and things of that nature. So obviously all these patients, when they're enrolled, they had to be confirmed to have COVID because that only makes sense. And they had certain exclusion criteria and things like that. You know, these patients could not have been in the hospital, obviously, and they couldn't have had SATs uh, less than 92 at the time of randomization, other underlying issues such as COPD, cirrhosis, heart failure, immunocompromise, yada, yada, yada. And so these patients were randomized to a one-to-one ratio of fluvoxamine or placebo, and they went ahead and randomized them according to whatever technology they were using at that time, or whatever methodology, excuse me. And so the patients who actually received the study drug, being the fluvoxamine, they received a dose of 50 milligrams in the evening immediately after a baseline assessment and confirmation of eligibility. Then after that, for two days, they got a dose of 100 milligrams twice daily as tolerated. And then they increased it to a dose of 100 milligrams three times a day as tolerated through day 15. And at day 15, they went ahead and stopped it. Now, there's the second option, which is listed in the in the article, where they could have received a six-day open-label course of fluvoxamine, but this was a deviation from the original study protocol. So now let's quickly review the primary and secondary endpoints. The primary endpoint was a clinical deterioration, which is defined by both. Number one, presence of shortness of breath or hospitalization for shortness of breath or pneumonia. And the patients also had to have a decrease in oxygen saturation, and they used a goal set of less than 92% on room air, or supplemental oxygen required to maintain SATs greater than 92. And so the reason, the way that they were able to corroborate this primary endpoint was via phone discussions with participants or a review of medical records. 
They also had a number of other secondary endpoints, which if I were to go ahead and go through them one by one, you'd definitely turn off this podcast. But it had to do with how much shortness of breath they had. Obviously, since the physicians and researchers couldn't see these patients directly, they went ahead and reached out to these patients twice a day, and they also had self-reported responses. And they ultimately wrapped up the contact with these patients after 30 days by calling the patient and asking them, have you visited a hospital or emergency department since your last study survey 30 days ago? And then, you know, they went ahead and put that data all together. So when we look at the results, they ended up getting 80 people in the fluvoxamine arm and 72 people in the placebo arm. And again, the primary endpoint, which was cl clinical deterioration, they found that zero patients, again, zero patients in the fluvoxamine arm ended up having clinical deterioration. Meanwhile, in the placebo arm, six out of the 72 patients, which equals 8.3% of patients, ended up having some clinical deterioration. This difference is statistically significant, but let's be very cautious before we go ahead and celebrate and start putting fluvoxamine in the water. When it comes to the secondary endpoints, which uh, ultimately were the ones I described about shortness of breath, but I didn't describe great into, greatly into detail, there were some of these that were statistically significant and patients, generally speaking, did do better on the fluvoxamine. Please see the actual uh, data, the actual study for additional details on this. Also, they state that there was a small number of endpoint events which make the findings extremely fragile. Another issue that they noted was that 20% of study participants stopped responding to surveys during the 15-day trial. It was confirmed, though, that none of these participants required medical care, such as hospitalization or to go to the ED. But again, since some of these endpoints were subjective, it could have altered those findings. The authors also provided some insight as to how challenging it actually was to go ahead and conduct this study. I'm going to read this sentence because it's, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty eye-opening, but they state that, quote, the study required approximately 4,500 hours of staff time and 30 hours of time per participant, end quote. Research is hard, guys. I know it's, it makes it seem, you know, some people make it seem like it's easy and that everything should be tested in a clinical trial, but... These things are, are, are resource intensive, so we need, to be, we need to be cognizant of this whenever we look at a trial and just shred it to bits with, honestly, complete disregard to the authors and the staff that actually took the time to conduct this clinical trial, this one or any other clinical trial. So what's the take-home point here? Well, ultimately, this was a preliminary randomized clinical trial, and they did show that fluvoxamine was associated with a reduction in clinical deterioration in adult outpatients with COVID-19. The patients who got the placebo met criteria for clinical deterioration in 8.3% of the cases. But again, this is determined to be hypothesis generating because of all the limitations that I mentioned before in this study. They did not notice any issues with regards to safety. They state that this medication is widely available, it is of low cost, and you can also take it orally. They also state that as opposed to other SSRIs, Fluvoxamine does not promote QT prolongation, which is something that we need to worry about. But it does have adverse effects and could cause certain drug-drug interactions that the clinician needs to be cognizant of when they go ahead and start this medication on patients. Ultimately, myself as an ICU doctor, I'm not going to be starting any of my patients on fluvoxamine because this is an outpatient study. But it should be encouraging that we might have another, another drug that we could use for our care of COVID patients to hopefully 
improve their outcomes and have less patients come visit me and my staff in the ICU. Hope you guys got something out of this particular, I guess, podcast, um, looking at fluvoxamine and COVID-19. Message me for any comments or concerns. Obviously, check out the study for yourself. It's on my website. Link in the description box below. Appreciate your support. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye.